went quicker than I was expecting, and I'm uh, still stuck in my throat sweet, and we've got technical difficulties, but apart from that, it's all well. Good morning, everybody. Please tell me you're awake at the beginning of my sermon. Good morning, everybody. Excellent. Thank you. So um, this morning, we are continuing in our theme of the world that we are born into, and uh, we're looking at the subject of under threat, and those readings are particularly pertinent to us this morning and to what we are going to be talking about together. Oppressive rulers are no new phenomenon, are they? There is something dark within the human heart that leads towards that, and we have that phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we just need to look at human history to see that that is clearly true. So here's some of the people that we might have imagined when we think about oppressive rulers. Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, Mussolini, Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, the Kim Dynasty, and Julius Caesar, who is an appropriate one as we come to talk about the Christmas story. Oppressive leaders, dictators, Rulers characterized by violent power, by cruelty, and the removal of any perceived threats that may come against them. Of course, we have two more in our readings this morning, don't we? Pharaoh in Exodus 1 and 2. Pharaoh who, once he became threatened by the Hebrews, oppressed them. He got them to do more building, to work harder. He gave them less and less resources and made it ever increasingly difficult for them. And eventually, when it all became too much, he said, well, I need to wipe them out. I need to kill all the boys under two years of age. I need to get rid of them completely in order to maintain my power and authority. And then we move on to King Herod. In Matthew chapter 2, in a time of great oppression, taxation, and restriction, he uses violence in the face of any threat to his own power. We are linking our Advent theme this year to the work of Open Doors, and it talks around two main approaches to persecution of believers. And these two approaches can be seen as the squeeze and smash, which is really good and easy to remember, isn't it? To take the approach of either squeeze or smash. And when we approach persecution through squeezing people, we bring on ever-increasing challenge, ever-increasing restriction, threat, and difficulty. And eventually, we move into the smash phase where we just destroy people, and we're going to be looking at that a little bit more in a moment together. Matthew chapter 2 starts with these words in the days of Herod the king. I don't know how much you know about Herod, Herod the Great, the ruler of the Roman province of Judea. He was a tyrannical king who was cruel not only to his own subjects but his own family as well. He executed one wife and at least three of his children. He came from Edom. 
His family had good relations with the Romans, and so he was set up as the king of the Jews. Does that name sound familiar to you? He ruled intentionally for the greater glory of Rome, but actually he had many opponents. Historians suggest that maybe he even had his own secret police, something that we see amongst most oppressive rulers in every generation and geographical location. He was also greatly into architecture and liked a building project or two or three or four, and that led to heavy taxation of the people. And he was, as many other rulers like him, paranoid, paranoid. His own father had died from poisoning, and so Herod was himself paranoid about any threat that might come against his power, which was arguably not that powerful anyway. But when you have power, you want to keep it, and Herod was definitely one of those people. In our Advent readings, the story that most clearly comments about him and his approach is in Matthew chapter 2. And we often refer to it as the slaughter of the innocents. The slaughter of the innocents. This image is actually from Bethlehem, which is quite a pertinent place to be talking about right now in our historical time. And if you go to the cave that lies underneath the church of the nativity, you can see this. And uh, a couple of decades back, I got to see this. And there's all sorts of discussions about what it actually is or who it actually is. But as you stand in that cave and you see surrounding you all these skulls, many of them clearly belonging to small children and babies, you can't help but be reminded and moved by the reality that is this story in Matthew chapter 2. That after the Magi had visited, looking for a new king, you can imagine all of Herod's antennae going off at that moment, can't you? This is the man who's paranoid, who kills people that set themselves up against him. And these wise men from the east, wealthy, coming to find a new king. Herod's like, whoa, tell me about this some more. I want to know about this. If there's anyone that's setting themselves up against me, I need to know. And so he tells the Magi, doesn't he? When you've found him, come back and tell me. And thankfully, as there so often is in the Nativity story, there's divine intervention. And they're warned not to go back to him. But in an almost parallel act to Pharaoh... He also orders that all the baby boys under the age of two should be murdered and destroyed. You see, this is the world that Jesus was born into. Theo alluded to that, actually, in his introduction. This was the world that Jesus was born into. He was born into a world of political upheaval, Nothing was settled. Things were up for grabs. There was fighting on every corner to keep 
the rule of Rome. It was a world where violence was common for the purposes of taxation, for the purpose of oppression and keeping control. Violence was common in those times. And arguably, it was a time like any other where humanity was a battleground. And we don't need to look far into our newspapers or our apps to find out the battlegrounds that are current, which doesn't even uh, comment on the ones that have gone off the front pages. Humanity is a battleground, whether on a local level, a family level, or a global level. And Jesus came into a time like ours. The writer C.S. Lewis died approximately 60 years ago last week, and uh, he says this. He says, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death, disease, and sin. Christianity agrees. This is a universe at war. Now, I don't know how you feel about the nativity story and Advent. Anthony offered me today or Christmas Eve. Apart from that, I'm not here on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve was a much more cheery subject. You'll be glad to hear that for coming on Christmas Eve. But actually, I, I love talking about this because this is the reality. There's This is not simply a nice story, nor is it a nasty story, but a clear illustration of a universe at war. This is a story of the demonstration of the spiritual battle in which we are all engaged. And it's really important that we understand it as such. This isn't just the bit of the Christmas story that you kind of skirt over and try to avoid. I don't know how many of you have um, seen the film Nativity, where there's the two schools that are competing for the Hollywood production. Some of you are smiling, that's a good thing. And, uh, and the posh school, they go to watch the nativity, and it's this dark nativity of Herod and the slaughter of the innocents. And of course, everyone thinks, well, this is not appropriate for seven-year-olds. But it's part of the story. It's a really important part of the story because it's the part of the story that reminds us that this is a spiritual battle. In 1 John and chapter 3 and verse 8, it says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You couldn't really put it much more plainly than that, or the message says the Son of God entered the scene to abolish the devil's ways. Jesus left the glory of heaven to come and be born on earth as a baby in a relatively obscure place, not so that we could have nice nativity stories, but in order to abolish the devil's ways, to destroy the devil's work. Because we know that this story is just the beginning of the story, isn't it? This story leads 
to a perfect life, to a death on a cross, to the taking of sin and guilt and shame and death itself, to being in a tomb for three days and being raised from death and ultimately restored to heaven. Through this, Jesus destroyed Satan and one day, it will be completely destroyed. The battle is won, but we don't see all of that yet. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's ways. I guess some of you will maybe be familiar with the name Clive Calver. Clive Calver was uh, the head of Evangelical Alliance some while back. Uh, his son, Gavin, is now head of Evangelical Alliance. Um, and when he'd left that, he went across to work in America and to head up a church there in a place called Newtown, Connecticut. Quite soon after he arrived, the school that was next door to the church where they had some level of involvement experienced one of the, the first notable, tragic, devastating massacres of children and teachers at the hands of a gunman. And Clive and his wife Ruth and others from the church were seriously involved in that trauma in offering pastoral care and support. And he wrote these words at that time. He said, we are painfully, dreadfully reminded since the events of last week in Newtown, Connecticut, that the advent of Christ is not, in fact, a kitsch nativity scene in a mall in midwinter, nor a sentimental moment for the kids to shine as the star or Mary or Joseph in the play, lovely though that is, but a crucial moment in a battle played out both on a cosmic scale and in our own hearts. The coming of Jesus was a dangerous mission a great invasion, a daring raid into enemy territory. It's many years ago that I read those words for the first time, but they have always stuck with me. It is this battle which is behind every other battle, every lesser battle. The chief persecutor, Satan, the evil one who seeks to destroy the people of God. I imagine that some of you are familiar with the World Watch List that Open Doors produces every year. This is the image from 2023. And these are the top 50 countries where it's most difficult and dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. A huge majority of those people are in that 1040 window, 10 degrees to 40 degrees latitude, where there are countries which experience fairly great poverty, a lower quality of life, less access to Christian resources in the more wealthy nations. These are 62% of the unreached people groups in our world that are in that window. These are the top 50 countries that experience persecution in our world in this last year. And I know that, that number 50 is now, I never know how to describe this, uh, it's 
you can be in the top 100 and, and maybe 10 years ago you'd have only been in the top 50. Does that make sense? Things are so much worse now that it's quite hard to get into the top 50. I wanted to explain to you how Open Doors defines persecution because I think that's quite important. It says there is no international legal definition of persecution. Situations can be defined as persecution where persons experience the denial of the rights listed in Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. However, World Watch List methodology has opted for a theological rather than a sociological definition. Any hostility experienced as a result of one's identification with Christ. This can include hostile attitudes, words, and actions towards Christians. This broad definition includes, but is not limited to, restrictions, pressure, discrimination, opposition, disinformation, injustice, intimidation, mistreatment, marginalization, oppression, intolerance, infringement, violation, ostracism, hostilities, harassment, abuse, violence, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. Pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Do you remember we started off talking about the squeeze and smash approach to oppression and persecution? And in order to decide where you end up in the world watch list, this is how they decide. And there's five categories of life. And I think it's really important that we hear these things because these are our brothers and sisters across the globe who are experiencing this. And one day, in all likelihood, it will be us that is experiencing this. So the first area is private life. What freedom does a Christian have to worship and to own religious material? Are you allowed to convert to Christianity? Are you allowed freedom of thought? What is going on in your private life that is being restricted or controlled from outside? If you live in North Korea today and you have a portion of scripture, you will most likely bury it in your garden and only dig it up when you want to look at it because you will be put into prison at best if you are found to hold a portion of scripture on you. That is somebody controlling your private life, your ability to read what you want to whenever you want to. Family life is the second. How free are you to express your faith within your family? Are you allowed to have a Christian marriage or a Christian funeral? And the reality is that for many people across the globe today, if you are found to be teaching Bible stories to your children, your children will be taken away from you. And there is no freedom to have a Christian marriage or a Christian funeral, only in secret. Community life. Can Christians live without harassment and discrimination in their local communities? How does their faith affect their education or employment? Now, we have been watching in Afghanistan recently, haven't we, that education for women is now being almost entirely denied. That is probably the reality for Christian women and some Christian men in many countries already. There will be no education or very basic education. You will only be permitted to do a menial job 
not a job where you have influence if you are a follower of Jesus. National life, does the government allow Christians to express their faith? Can converts call themselves Christians on official documents? Do the police target Christians? We know in many Muslim nations that it is not acceptable or even possible for you to change your religion on your passport from Muslim to Christian. It's not allowed. You can go the other way, but you can't go that way. It's not okay. You cannot be known to be a follower of Jesus. Church life. Are Christians allowed to meet together? Can they build churches? And if they can, are they heavily monitored? Are Bibles freely available? Well, again, we just watch stories, don't we, of Christians meeting together, being infiltrated by the secret police, and then being um, their names being given over to the authorities, and then them being punished. We read every week of churches being bombed or fire, uh, burned down with fire in many of the nations of our world because Christians meet there. There are no Bibles available. There are portions of Scripture. They are not easily available. These are all the squeeze things. We haven't even got to the smash things. These are all the things which you imagine that picture again of the lemon. And you just keep squeezing and squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. And eventually, you get rid of the life, don't you? And that is what is happening to many of our brothers and sisters around the globe today. And eventually, there's the smash bit where followers of Jesus are attacked mentally or physically, they may face sexual harassment. They may be arrested, abducted, tortured, imprisoned, or even killed. Are you still with me? How are we part of that? How are we part of that? Here in Scotland, I think I might have extended Scotland slightly. You see, this chief persecutor, the destroyer, the accuser of the saints, the one who was behind Pharaoh, wanting to obliterate God's people in Exodus, who is behind Herod, wanting to destroy the Son of God in Matthew, is the same persecutor who is still at work and his methods are unchanging. His methods are unchanging. He will always aim to limit our freedoms. He will always aim to limit our freedoms, to limit our opportunities and to limit our worship. And so we need to remain aware, don't we? Not paranoid, but aware, aware of what is going on around us. We are not entitled to gather and worship together. We are used to that here because we've had it for centuries. But we are not entitled to that. And we need to be aware of what is going on around us and how those restrictions may be being limited. We also need to nurture our own faith and discipleship. 
Because that's one of the things that our brothers and sisters across the globe are really brilliant at, is nurturing their own faith and discipleship. Because they know that they might not be able to meet in a church and have somebody kind of do it for them at the front. They know they need to do that for themselves where they are to build their own faith and confidence in Jesus and his love for them, to cultivate their own worship of him in their own homes, in difficult spaces, in challenging times, to nurture that ongoing walk and discipleship with Jesus. We need to read and to learn scripture. Now, I wonder how many of you learned Bible verses when you were perhaps younger. Hands up. Anyone learn Bible verses? See, there's quite a lot of you. Now, I'm super competitive, so I learned a lot of Bible verses because they were always prizes. And whenever there's prizes, you can count me in for something like that. But uh, in the church that I used to lead, we once, once uh, evening, we got people to write out all the Bible verses they could remember was really interesting, or in the kind of a story that they could remember. It didn't have to be the exact words necessarily. I wonder how much you can do that. I wonder how many verses or passages or themes or stories you know. I wonder if you were put in a solitary confinement, how much you could write down. Terry Waite did that in those five years that he was kept in Lebanon, he wrote down scriptures that he had learned, and it helped him to keep focused and focused on God. I encourage you, if you find that difficult, yes, I think we quite often find it difficult, and truthfully, the older we get, the more difficult we find it, but really to try to do that, to try and learn, to try and remember, to try and get it inside you, the Word of God, because you never know when you are going to need that. And also, in this time, we need to appropriately engage with our government and with policy. Where we can make differences now, we should do that with wisdom and integrity and carefully. But we should engage to make sure that the things that we take for granted now, we suddenly don't lose so what else can we learn from our brothers and sisters across the globe? First of all, the expectation of oppression. This is normal for the people of God. If you read your Bible, you will find that oppression is normal for the people of God. The New Testament is written to persecuted believers. It is written not to people where everything is nice and easy and straightforward, but to a small church, the minority church that was under persecution from Rome. So when you read it, imagine that that's who they're talking to and put yourself into that situation. We should expect that life will be tough on occasion, if not all of the time. The second thing is an expect expectation of divine intervention. I want to go back to the nativity story for a moment. Because in the nativity story, read it again and notice how many angels there are. Because the angels like pop up all of the time. And they are glorious and mighty and powerful and sent by God 
to intervene in this key moment in human history. Also notice how many dreams there are where God speaks to the key players in the story by way of a dream and changes the direction of what is going on. If you've read books around what is going on in the Muslim world, you will have read stories of people who have encountered Jesus in dreams. You will read stories of people who have seen and encountered angels in their regular, ordinary lives as the presence of God has encountered them to protect, to direct, to change the consequences of what is ahead. I had the privilege of going to Jordan a few years back and met quite a lot of Muslim background believers. I thought these stories were unusual. Every single person I met started their story with, I had a dream and I had a vision of Jesus. This was normal because even though those countries are closed to the express work of the gospel, they're never closed to Jesus and to his work. And what we are starting to see across Scotland and in England as well is more and more stories of people who are having these same experiences. Our nations are so secular now. We have so little background in Christian faith that people are starting to have these same experiences of Jesus being revealed to them in dreams and visions and turning up at church and going, I want to be saved. It's really remarkable and it's really exciting. And the darker it gets, the more we should have an expectation of the supernatural intervention of God amongst us. And the third thing I think that we can learn is that we need to live the way of Jesus. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus stood up in the synagogue, and he read those words from Isaiah the prophet. Come to comfort those who mourn, to be good news to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, to release those who live in darkness. We need to be those people who embody the reality and life of Jesus where we are now in order that we might do it whatever might come in the future. We need to be like Jesus, don't we? Some years ago now, there was an advertising campaign which embodied the idea that Jesus had come as a revolutionary to this world. And uh, the backstory for the campaign was just to talk about Jesus. And it said this, his attitudes and behavior were revolutionary. He treated women with respect. He spent time with thieves common prostitutes and the disease-infected underclasses. He was defiant yet loving. He was an outlaw, seen as a political agitator, a man hunted and hated by the authorities. His revolution was one of love, respect, and hope. In everything he did, Christ was a revolutionary. We wanted to contrast Jesus with the revolutionaries of the 20th century to make people consider what makes a person revolutionary. We belong to an alternative kingdom, don't we? We belong to a kingdom of love and truth where power is expressed 
in different ways from those oppressive tyrants that we talked about at the beginning of our time together. How do we give hope? How do we give hope to brothers and sisters across the world today? How do we give hope to people who are struggling in difficult situations, who are facing oppression, who are finding that their lives are being restricted? I mean, it might be your friends. It might be your family. How do we encourage and give hope to those in situations like that? Well, two things, and then I'm going to wrap up. First of all, whenever you ask somebody from the suffering church, what can we do for you? The answer is always, will you pray? Now, I think we kind of often want it to be something else. But actually, when people live in very challenging and difficult times, they know that prayer is the greatest weapon because it reaches where everything else cannot. And our prayers can reach where other stuff cannot. So if you think of people in any of those 50 countries that were on that graphic earlier on, and you think, what can I do for them? The answer is that you can pray for them. Today, whilst we're sat here thinking it's blooming freezing in this church, We have members of our family who are on a cement floor of a prison in North Korea, and it snows there. Wearing very little, eating very little, being tortured because they follow Jesus Christ. What can you do this morning? What can we do this morning? We can pray for them. Because equally, there are stories of people who've just suddenly sensed warmth in freezing environments, who sensed the presence of God when they are isolated, who felt their stomachs are full when they've scarcely had anything to eat, who felt their courage renewed. So when we say, well, what can I do? And the answer is pray. It is not, oh, we can only pray. It's that we have the privilege to pray and to bring all the force of heaven to bear on these friends in their situation right now, today. Isn't that an amazing privilege that we have to do that? We can pray. And the second thing is that we need to remember eschatology. I thought I'd just throw that in in the last sentence eschatology. We need to remember that this is not all there is. This is not all there is. And there's a wonderful verse in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. And it says of the martyrs, they have conquered him, the enemy, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And it is really, really important. Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one. And at the end of the story, 
the evil one is entirely overcome. And all those who have suffered for his name will stand in the presence of the Lamb who was slain and worship him forever. There is an alternate ending. It's not the ending of Pharaoh, and it is not the ending of Herod. It is the ending that is designed by Jesus Christ himself. And the end is the Lamb wins. The Lamb wins. And everyone from every tongue and tribe and nation in every generation will be there at the feet of the Lord himself to worship him in spirit and in truth for all eternity.